Welcome to Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack. I am Tammy Mack. So according to ABC News, the term black on black crime was first widely used in the 1970s. And while it is a term that many people say is rooted in anti-blackness, Ebony Magazine, the first commercially successful nationally circulated black-owned magazine, featured an article about black-on-black black crime in 1979. Is black-on-black black crime real or is it a dangerous myth? Let's get down to the business of being black. The business of being black today is black-on-black black crime, a myth or truth? Please welcome a core team member with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles and the director of Students Deserve, Joseph Williams. Hi, Joseph. How you doing? The host of We Gonna Be All Right podcast, Jeff Wiggins is here. Hi, Jeff. You said that so good. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. They don't pay me the big bucks for nothing, Jeff. <laughs> and conservative journalist and commentator, John Miller is with us. Welcome back, John. Great to be here, Tammy. Always the pleasure to have you. So let's talk about black on black crime. Why should black people care about black on black crime being a myth or the truth? Why should black people even care? Jeff, let's kick it off with you. Look, I'm sure that we can all agree that black violence and quote unquote black on black crime is an issue in black communities. But what we're really talking about is residential segregation and concentrated poverty. So it's okay to call it that. Joseph? I absolutely agree. I mean, uh, most folks harm the folks that they live around, right? Um, as Jeff was pointing out. And I think also um, taking a step back you have to, to criticize the, the term crime, right? Crime is a political term, right? Uh, to categorize harms that, that folks commit against each other and, and uh, the folks who have the power to categorize certain harms as crimes and other harms not as crimes, right? Are usually not black, right? In, in a white supremacist political system that we live in, the folks who are able to apply the term crime to certain types of harm and not to other types of harm um, are not black folks, right? So even the categorization of things as crime has to be critiqued for sure. And I think it's extremely important for black folks to be aware of that, right? That that uh, the messages and the and the words that we're using have power and the meaning of what is or is not a crime, the meaning of what is or is not legal come from folks who have power. Interesting. I want to touch on that again uh, during the show about how the word crime itself is a political term, because this is my first time hearing that, my friend. John Miller. Oh, boy. <laughs> why? Why? Why should? Let's uh, hold on. Let me ask the question so we don't get off base here. Why should black people care? Why should black people care if black on black crime is a myth or the truth? Why should black people care? Uh, why should black people care that 90% of pe black people who are killed are killed by other black people? Why should we care about that? I, I think we should care about it, A, because it's our own people who are being killed. And we want to figure out, right, whom they're being killed by. And then also, anytime someone dies, I think it's something that we should care about. And I find it interesting coming from someone who is organizing for Black Lives Matter to say, well, maybe we shouldn't care about black lives if the perpetrator happens to be someone of the same color. And I find I it very interesting. I find it very interesting that this idea that crime is just a political term. It has a definition. Crime is when someone breaks the law. But I think that in this particular instance, we're talking about 
a very specific type of crime. I think we can all agree we're mostly referring to violent crime and, and specifically probably murder. When people hear black on black violence, they mostly start to talk about the black on black violent and specifically murder rates. And um, like uh, you said at the top, we can all agree that it kind of is an issue. It's more or less the, the reasons for this issue. And I can understand that it's the reasons for this issue and, and why it's happening. But you can't say you can't say it's a myth when the, when, when the facts are in the numbers. So then I want to, and I know Jeff wants to come right back because Jeff gave you that side. I like, hold on. I didn't even say that. <laughs> <laughs> he, he never, Jeff never said that you shouldn't care about black people killing black people. That's not what he said. <laughs> well, but that was the question. Why should we care? <laughs> no, no. The, the question is, why should we care whether the term is a myth or the truth? So the question okay, revolves let, around yeah, the I'll, term I'll, I'll itself. I'll clarify. Yeah. You you want to you you want to go with the term? You want to answer that question, John? Oh, the term. I, I mean, I think that I don't think the term is a myth. I think that the whole the whole thing is a reality. I think everything about it. Should, the fact that black people are being killed by black people. You have the numbers. You have I think eighty one percent of uh, the country's victims are black, and when black people are committing Here's most of I those thought. crimes. Sorry, Siri's yelling at me. It's that's uh, I mean, that's not a reality. That's not a myth. That is hundred percent a reality. And uh, the fun thing about facts and the fun thing about truth is that when you look at the numbers and you look at the actual facts of the situation, you can't really call it a myth. Jeff, you can't really call it a myth when you look at the facts, John says. Well, see, Siri was trying to stop John from saying something goofy, so that's why she chimed in. John, let's look at the numbers. The vast majority of homicides in this country are between men, and there's no term for man-on-man crime. The vast majority of homicides in this country are from people who live at or below the federal poverty line, and there's no such term as poor-on-poor crime. We know why they call it black-on-black crime. It's because they want to victimize us. The only reason why it became a term in general is because the media used it and presidents used it, such as Nixon, Reagan, and Clinton, to get themselves elected president. So it was pressed in the nightly news because people wanted to to some degree, have a common enemy, and a Democrat and a, a Republican president did that with the term "black on black crime," and they used this in order to get themselves in office. So, so Joseph, again, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna go with what Jeff is saying here. Is black on black crime a byproduct of racial segregation and concentrated poverty? Absolutely, absolutely, and I, and I want to go back to 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 something that John said. Um, you know, he questioned why I called crime a political term. And he said, crime is when somebody breaks the law. And what are laws, if not political constructions, right? At one point in this country, it was legal for folks to own other human beings as slaves, right? It wasn't categorized as a crime then. So literally the category and the, the categorization of certain harms as crimes is absolutely uh, stems absolutely from political power. Who has the political power to categorize one type of harms um, as a crime and another type of harms as something else? Jeff pointed out the fact that the vast majority of quote-unquote crimes are committed by folks who are in poverty, right? Which tells us uh, that actions committed by folks in poverty are criminalized much more than actions committed by folks in power, right? It is a crime, for example, to steal uh, you know, uh, or take a, a bag of chips from, uh, you know, a, a corner store without paying for it. But we see over and over and over again, corporations practicing wage 
uh, theft or practicing tax evasion or practicing other forms of immense theft, right, from the public or from individuals that are not categorized or prosecuted as crimes. So that's why I'm saying that even the category, the word, the term crime has to be problematized, has to be examined, right, um, to, th to, to even consider what are we talking about. And absolutely, Jeff is right that the term has been used, has been politicized to turn folks against each other, right? And well, for we certainly have a lot to restructure in this world today. Um, sure. I don't I don't know how we can handle all the restructuring and redefining and uh, of words and and things that have come to be as it stands. John, what do you think about this crime being a political term just to I guess just just to put away black people who are poor? I mean, we have laws in this country, and yes, laws are obviously a result of politics and our government system. But the reason why slavery was legal is was illegal was was illegal back then is not legal now is because back then the law said that you could own another human being. And so when people break the law, it, it all that matters is what's legal now and what isn't legal now. And and this idea that all of these white collar crimes are being committed and they're not getting caught. I mean, Biden just got an entire army of IRS agents to go after people for tax evasion. I know plenty of people who are worried that the IRS is going to either come and audit them or, or, or you know, people do their taxes diligently because why they don't want the IRS coming. So this idea that every, all these white people are walking around getting away with tax fraud and all these white collar crimes, and it's only little Johnny who's going to the store to steal a bag of chips that gets caught, I don't know if that's 100% true. I think that that's kind of the stereotype, right? But it's not really the reality. You, you look at the most, or used to be the most powerful man in the world, Donald Trump, and he has literally the entire DOJ, the entire FBI, almost all of law enforcement, the most powerful law enforcement agency in the country, coming to his house, rummaging through his stuff, rummaging through his wife's stuff. So I don't think it's fair to say that the rich and powerful and white people are not uh, affected by all of these laws. It's really just the fact that if you break the law, yeah, there's a chance that you're going to get caught. And I know in Chicago they're trying to make that so that's not the case. They're letting and then out. kind of in and the way else. of in the way of Trump, there's a chance that you might not get caught for several years, uh, decades even. But John, um, I want to ask this: Jeff posed the question: Is there poverty on poverty crime? Is there man on man crime? Is there white on white crime? Why isn't it all labeled? Why is there such a concern, a concentrated concern when it comes to black people? Because it's the largest group of crime, right? It's the it's the it's in the biggest numbers and black on black crime is is the most problematic one at this point. I, I have heard people. How is black on black crime more problematic than any other crime? Because, because when you look at the numbers it, in Chicago, for instance, it's 81 percent of the crime is black on black crime. And when you look at 90 percent, as I brought up before, those numbers, 90 percent of black people are being killed by other black men. That's very that's, that's almost all of the cases. So when you look at the numbers and you look at the stats and you're like, well, what's the problem here? When you see the largest number being black on black crime, that's the one you're going to talk about. Uh, I think that, yeah, it is fair. Poor people obviously commit crimes at higher levels and poverty. Is something Hold that, that thought, Jeff. I know you are itching to get in. We'll do that after commercial break. 
Welcome back to Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack. I am Tammy Mack. We left off with John saying black on black crime is the most problematic crime. I say American crime is the most problematic considering we are the nation with the most crimes out of anyone in this entire globe. But Jeff, you want to respond? Well, so I want to go with John. Let me just preface this. I hope you don't feel like I'm picking on you because if you do, the next 45 minutes are going to be long. Joseph, what Joseph was talking about earlier. Listen, let me tell you, Jeff, John is here for it. Okay. What Joseph was talking about earlier was a lot of framing. And so, for instance, when it came to the IRS agents that Joe Biden wanted to hire, John said an army. What? An army of IRS agents doesn't even seem right. Like, I can see, no disrespect, I can see. No, you're right. It doesn't seem right. It's... Never, never mind that. Let's, let's keep going. So, an issue in this country and it's not called a crime, is civil forfeiture. When the police can come and take your assets because they assume you committed a crime. And then you have to go through a lot of loopholes in order to get your property back. It is theft, but it's not called a crime because the police do it. If you want another example, wage theft. When corporations and organizations underpay people, that is theft, but it's not a crime because it's not called that, which is why Joseph was talking about an agenda in terms of framing. John, you called the IRS an army because you felt like it, because of a political agenda. Fine, cool. All of us have it to some degree, but yes, let's go back to what you said. There's no such thing as man-on-man crime. There's no such thing as poor-on-poor crime. Now, The largest demographic in this country when it comes to suicide is middle-aged white males. Do they call it like, I don't know, white plight? No. When when the opioid epidemic hit white communities, what do they call it? They call it a public health crisis. It's framing. It's framing. You know what they're doing when it comes to black on black crime. You know what they're doing, so I don't know why you're not saying it. So I I just want to quickly go back to the army army comment when you get an armed irs agent showing at your house because you might have made a mistake on your taxes i think that's like slight hyperbole but it's not the most ridiculous comparison to say that 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 they are and the sheer numbers i mean it's ridiculous and that doesn't affect white people only i mean that's going to affect anyone who maybe made a mistake when filing their taxes but of course framing i'm not going to deny that framing is a thing and that things are framed differently but I, th- I, I actually agree with you on the civil asset forfeiture. When it comes to, what was the other one you brought up? I think it was- uh, Wage theft. Wage theft. Wage theft. That's contractual stuff. When you sign a contract, you sign the contract that says, I'm willing to be paid this amount. And then the employer agrees to that and says, okay, well, we're giving you this amount. You can't go back and say, well, you know, now I think that I deserve more and you're stealing from me. I think that's a huge stretch to say that that's theft. I understand in the poetic sense, maybe, in in kind of the esoteric sense, okay, maybe you can call it theft because they're making a lot of money, I guess, is the perspective business owners are making a lot of money. (laughs) But you can't call an employer who pays the employee the agreed upon amount a thief. John, I don't think you understand the concept of wage theft, right? So wage theft is actually failing to pay um, or provide the wages that an employee is duly owed. And this can look like not allowing employees to take uh, breaks by law and then not paying them for not taking those breaks. This can look like forcing folks uh, to work overtime and not paying 
the legal overtime fees, and it happens all of the time. As a matter of fact, the amount that is stolen from the average working employee nationally through wage theft makes up more than all of the property crimes committed uh, in the entire country. And this happens year after year after year. You okay, well, that, I mean, if, if you the fail wage theft a is absolutely a crime, that, it's not, a, it's not an issue of employees agreeing to take less money. It's an issue of corporations refusing to give employees the money that they owe them. And it happens over and over and over again. And again, going back to power, the reason it is you often don't hear about it and why you apparently don't even know what wage theft is, is because there's a massive power imbalance from a minimum wage employee uh, versus a major corporation, right? And so we don't often hear about those things and are not labeled as crimes, right? Because minimum wage employees don't make political and campaign contributions, but massive corporations do. So wage theft is a real thing. It is a crime. Uh, and it has nothing to do with, uh, you know, what your contention around employees agreeing or, or entering into a contract. It is a real issue that we see, especially for low-income folks, especially for Black folks across the country. So again, this issue of framing, this issue of how do we categorize and what do we categorize as crime, that wage step literally steals more money from the people. The framing is quite interesting here. So, in the country. so John, I want to ask you, because the framing is uh, does seem to be the issue. Uh, why most people who commit mass shootings are white men. Why isn't there a term for that? There is, we call it mass shootings, but the most recent mass shooting- But we Memphis, don't attach it to white men. Oh, I think we do. I think when you heard about that Buffalo shooting, what was the only thing you heard in the news? How, how was that framed? That was framed as a white supremacist shooting. That was framed he as- framed it you know, himself everyone as a white media. supremacist shooting. He had a white supremacist manifesto. He wrote the N-word on his gun. That was a white supremacist mass murder. What do you mean? Okay, but the question, uh, the, the question was, why isn't it framed? The question was about framing, and the question was, why don't we frame it that way? Well, and when my argument is we absolutely other, did. My when black people kill each other, right? But when you not, when you they, have they don't say they don't have one second. Let me let John. Let me let John complete his thought. Let me finish this thought. When you had the shooting in Memphis, which when you had the deranged black guy that went around Memphis and shot up a bunch of white people saying that he wanted racial justice, I didn't hear a word in the media about how that was a racial attack. And when you look at again, you just go back to the numbers. You look at the majority of interracial killings, the majority of interracial attacks, violent attacks, are actually. Black on white, it's a minuscule the amount of white on black crimes or the white on black attacks that you see, but yet we don't hear about those. So I think the frame, I think uh, you talk to the average American and they say mass shootings because of the media, because of framing, the thing that you're going to think about is some deranged white, white, white supremacist or something of that type. Well, and so because, and because it's usually the truth. However, m my question still revolves around why isn't there a name for it? like black on black crime. Why isn't yeah. that white on white crime? I think, I mean, if we're just getting down to like nomenclature, I think mass shootings, maybe there will be a name for it later, but I think we all know the concept. When, you, when, when they put out the term mass shooting, they've done a very good job of making it seem like it's only what, that, that the gun problem, the gun violence problem, they've done a very good job of making that seem like it's a white problem in America and that it's black people who are the victims. Maybe there's not a specific name for it, but in terms of just how it's perceived by the public, I think absolutely the gun problem, the gun nuts, the religious nuts who have their guns, that's very much perceived as a white Republican Christian issue. Uh, Go ahead, Joseph. So maybe it doesn't have a name, but 
I mean, it's what there. the perception is, is different, right? Or, or what your perception of the public perception is, is different than what it's called, right? There, the word black on black crime is used over and over and over to dispel, uh, and, and it's usually brought up, right? When black folks are, are talking about the injustices that they have faced, right? Especially around police murder and, and racism and violence. So the fact, like Tammy is saying, that there's a term black on black crime, and there's not a term, right, that racially describes, um, you know, some of these mass uh, shootings, which you named, have been disproportionately committed by white folks, is a, a key issue at hand, right? What we're talking about is the phrasing, right? Yes, the issue of these mass shootings is a problem, but the term mass shootings is not racially- What do you uh, think white supremacy is, or white nationalism? Those terms are, are thrown around like, like nobody's business to describe anyone who has a belief that's like outside of the traditional, maybe left of Ruth Bader Ginsburg model. And you, they use white supremacy to describe anything. I, I think that white supremacy is a perfect example of a term that, that someone who has come up with to describe something that describes a whole slew of issues. But when you talk about the mass shootings, yeah, that's attributed under white supremacy. I mean, we can get down to particulars and figure out, like, well, why isn't there a name that but sounds I think, like black But I think the crime, white but... supremacists named themselves. That's not well, something that was attributed I, I know a lot. Them. I know a lot of people. You, you, go to any, you go to MSNBC, you go to any far-left network, and they describe people in Congress as white supremacists, who I can guarantee you haven't described or aren't self-described white supremacists. Go ahead, Jeff. John, John is just refusing to say it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna lead more into it. When he's trying to say that white supremacy as a term is also referring to violence, that's not true. White supremacy also refers to the fact that why you know why they speak English in South Africa and Australia. That's also white supremacy. It's not tied or directly linked to violence all the time, like the term black on black violence is. Let's okay, take a quick but- break and come right back on Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack on Fox Soul. Welcome back to Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack. I am Tammy Mack. Let's get down to the business of being black today, which is black on black crime. Is it a myth or is it the truth? Well, let's welcome a core team member with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles and the director of Students Deserve, Joseph Williams, the host of the We Gon' Be All Right podcast, Jeff Wiggins is here, and conservative journalist and commentator, John Miller. All right, John, let me go to you on this one. Do black people use white people as scapegoats when it comes to issues that plague our community? Of course. I mean, all you hear about is how black people are being killed in the streets by white supremacists left and right, and what are we gonna do about all this racism? And we can't escape. We can't even go for a drive without being pulled over by a racist white police officer and risk getting shot in the streets. And you look at the numbers, and that's why I reject the notion that black on black crime is a myth. Because when you look at the numbers, we're more likely to be killed by one of our own than a racist police officer or some racist white guy in the streets. And so we keep saying, well, white people are the problem. White people are doing this to us. White people are doing that to us. When in reality, we're doing it to ourselves. And I, I mean, we can have this kind of interesting intellectual exercise about why isn't there a term for this and why isn't there actual term for when white people kill a bunch of people. But at the end of the day, as a community, as us doing something for ourselves, we owe it to ourselves to look at this issue and say, what's the problem here? Why are most of our young men being killed by other black people and what can we do about it? Regardless of all the other issues that are, that, that are surrounded around what we call it and terminology and all that stuff, I think we should look at our community and say, what's happening here and how can we fix this? Because clearly this is a problem. 
Joseph, you you mentioned it a little bit earlier today, but I want to flat out ask, is black on black crime that term used against us? Because you mentioned that whenever black people are talking about their rights, about justice, here comes the but but the but black on black crime people. <laughs> so how how is it used against us? Absolutely. It's used to justify the over policing of black communities, right? Um, and you talked about it in your intro, how even the term itself came about in the in the early 70s, right after what? The civil rights and black power movements, right? As a response to the rise in consciousness and the demands for justice and change in the United States, the powers that be decided to use the term black on black crime to justify the over-policing and criminalization and mass incarceration of black folks for crimes that white folks do just as much, if not more, but are criminalized far less for Right. And so we absolutely see um, the consequences of the use of the term black on black crime justifies over policing that doesn't prevent crime, but it does lead to more death, um, especially by black folks. The safest communities, right, are not the communities with the most police. They're the communities with the most resources. But the mm. use of the term black on black crime um, incites fear in the public and is used to justify, uh, to use John's term, uh, armies of police invading and occupying low-income Black neighborhoods. Jeff, I want to ask you the same question, this Black-on-Black black crime term. It seems to come up every time Black people are asking for justice in some sort of fashion. Well, yeah. I mean, it comes up all the time, no matter what. You can be talking about anything like police brutality, and it becomes, what about Black-on-Black black crime? My car broke down. What about Black-on-Black black crime? Hey, have you seen that new Beyonce video? It should be coming out soon. What about Black-on-Black black crime? There's such a stigma around Black-on-Black black crime that, yes, it is very difficult to be Black in this country without being seen as a killer or a criminal, even though statistically you have to meet, like, 10,000 or so black males before you meet a killer. So yes, as John, uh, you know, attributed earlier, black people do kill black people more, but there's a term for that. It's proximity because friendships, relationships, and neighborhoods are all segmented by race. And you're more likely to kill somebody who looks like you or who lives near you. So if we called it proximity crime, it would still be talking about the same thing. Because while black on black crime is around, is around 90, 91%, white on white crime is 84-ish, 81%. So proximity crime would work in this situation. So we can get away from some of the stigma and we don't need to call it black on black crime in order to fix the issue. So I want to talk about what John suggests here because I think there's a, a, a valid point. Black on black crime is a bad thing. And it is something that we should look into as a black community. How do we rectify what exists without categorizing it to be this mythical thing with a name? Oh, Joseph, you could go. Jump in. Mm -hmm. Great. So I, I think this is is really a uh, one of the reasons why I brought up the framing, right? And and talking about you, the even the use of the term crime. When we look at these things as harm, it allows us to step back and say, how do we prevent harm? When we look at these things as crime, we look at the perpetrators as criminals, right? And so, uh, you know, when John said earlier that black folks don't care about our own communities and don't care about the harm that's going on in our communities. I frankly don't know what black folks you talk to, John. I but, don't know. But when you see another black man kill another black man, woman, uh, it is a crime. 
Absolutely. But ultimately it is harm, right? And what caused that harm? What caused a member of our community to harm another member of our community? And does it help or make our community safer to criminalize vast swaths of our community, right? By using the term black on black crime. And like Jeff was saying, essentially labeling all black men as criminals. Does that help our community? Does that prevent harm in our community? Or does it create more harm in our community, right? If we think about this as harm, how do we prevent more black folks from harming other black folks? And also how do we prevent um, all of the other forms of harm in our community, whether it's police brutality, whether it's uh, unequal access to housing or to education or to quality jobs, those are all things that harm our community and they lead to individuals harming each other. We've all I'm not quite sure I'm understanding people. because I can't wrap my head, Joseph, around a murder just simply being harmful. Well, I is, think what he's right. I, I Joseph, Go I don't want to speak to you. I, 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 I feel like it's yes, it's it's harmful, but it seems so light and fluffy. Well, I don't want to speak for Joseph, but I will say this, and I think he was alluding to it earlier. Some of the best, most protected, well-off communities are because there is access to food, housing, and mental health care in those communities, not right. necessarily because police are there. And let me tell you, in the suburbs, it's not because white people are there. They have all their needs met in those communities. And so what I think Joseph was alluding to, not to speak for him, he's doing a fantastic job. You too, you too John, let me give you some. Um, what he's alluding to is the harm that individual who committed a crime, what led them in this community, in this neighborhood, in this well-off, wealthy country to commit such a harm to another individual? How do we help that person to prevent such harm, such crime, homicide, murder, so we can help that individual? So let's kind of stop it before it actually happens. Police is largely uh, reactionary. So if we can, when it comes to poverty and segregation, there's something there. There's something there that's, you know, causing someone to say, you know what, I'm done, I'm going to do something. And it's, it could be a, a large access to a lot of care that they need. I, I must be missing, are you, are you saying essentially coddle the murderer and after he pulls the trigger, say, well, what, what caused you, what led you to the circumstance where you felt the need to kill another brother in cold blood? I mean, because that's kind of what it sounds like. I know that's not how you intended to come off. Well, for, you, for that, I want to say, I want to speak on that real quick. Isn't that what they do to white men who have mass shootings? Don't they say, oh, something must have been wrong. Oh, it must have been a mental illness. Oh, he was being bullied at school. Isn't that how that happens typically? That's not what I see. I mean, I watch a lot of media. I consume a lot of media. I read a lot of media. I don't really see anyone saying, well, we have to understand his rage. We have don't to they take him to Burger King, John? I don't yep. think so. I Yo, think John, that that's John, John, but John, oh, I mean, John, look, and I, John, I, I, we can have the, hold on one second. We can have the discussion about what led this person to that. But the minute they pull the trigger, the minute they kill someone, the minute they commit a crime and murder, because that's what you're seeing in Chicago. They, they just had the Safety Act that they're calling the um, they're calling the purge act because basically second degree murder or aggravated battery. Let me get arson. Jeff in real quick before we go to break. Go ahead, Jeff. John, man, it's you keep doing it. It's the framing. The safety act is about cash bail because two thirds of people in prison are only in there. Not yeah, because they, they let them out after they're done with crime. Them, after they commit it's those because crimes, they don't they have enough free. money to get out of jail. Hey, Jeff. they shouldn't be out of jail. They just beat somebody up. No, that's 
Dog, give me your email address. That's not what the safety act Not on does. air, but I will. They're in, they're in jail because they don't have money. They have not committed a crime or were the only accused of Let's take a quick crime. break. Come right back. Okay. Welcome back to Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack. I am Tammy Mack. And the Business of Being Black today is Black on Black Crime. Is it a myth or is it the truth? Let's get back to talking about this new bail system that some states are putting into place, Jeff. Okay, I apologize for not looking at the screen, but we're going to look at this together so John can say, oh, but where was the source? So he can debunk it, try, try to debunk it that way. Convicted criminals currently in jail will not be released. Someone who is arrested after January 1st, 2022, may be, re be released prior to their trial based on the assumption of innocence guaranteed in the United States of Constitution. It's a constitutional right that if you did not commit a crime, you shouldn't be in jail just because you don't have money. They're not releasing... Yeah criminals off the, uh, out of prison because they have not been convicted of being criminals. Two-thirds of people in jail right now are only there, only there, because they don't have enough cash to bail themselves out. But the presumption of innocence, that's something that's afforded to everybody. So basically it says, well, it won't let them out unless they're presumed to be innocent. <laughs> that's everybody, or at least it technically is but everybody then, okay. constitutionally. So, 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 but if they don't have money, then they can't be released. So why, so why don't you eliminate, so why don't you say, well, I'm sorry, you can't pay to get out of jail anymore. I'd much prefer that than it, that you can get out of jail for free. It's literally, that's exactly what it is. It is a get out of jail free card. That's the that's the most precise. Well, definition but once you of have your trial and you're found to be not guilty, you go free. You're found to be guilty, then you go to jail. Yeah, but what happens in the meantime? A lot of time, these people end up committing more crimes, if not something like murder. So that's it's not, it's, not make, it's not like anyone's looking at Chicago and saying, you know, what a safe place. I'd love to move there. I'd love to retire there. No Joseph one's looking go, at Keith Browder. That's not true. That not true at all. And also, you know, the, the, the statement that the presumption of innocence is given to everybody is just not how it plays out, right? Again, Tammy just just said Khalif Browder. Khalif Browder was a, I believe, 16 years old um, when he was criminalized and, and accused uh, of stealing a backpack, right? For the next three years, because his family could not afford bail and because the New York City uh, justice system is so backlogged, he was held without trial, before trial, because he refused to uh, admit to doing a crime that he did not commit. Three years because he couldn't afford bail. So that is what the safety law and other bail reform laws are trying to prevent, right? The criminalization and incarceration of folks who are actually innocent, um, but cannot get out of jail um, because they don't have the funds to afford bail. And everybody in this country has the right uh, to the presumption of innocence and also has the right to legal counsel. But we know that the vast majority of folks who don't have resources are pushed into a public defender system that is hugely underfunded in most places. And most of those folks are encouraged to take plea agreements whether or not they committed the initial crime. Khalif was encouraged over and over and over again to accept a plea agreement that said that he stole that backpack and he refused to do so. Many folks actually uh, get out sooner if they just take the plea agreement, but then you have a felony on your record and your access to jobs, access to housing, access to all these kinds of Pell Grants for, to go to uh, uh, you know college um, is taken away, right? So this bail reform measure is not about letting anybody do whatever. It's about giving folks the actual right uh, of having the presumption of innocence and not criminalizing folks because they're too poor to pay bail. 
So okay, Frederick my, my... L. Hoffman wrote a book in 1896 called The Race Traits and Tendencies of the American Negro. And he wrote about black people having a crime problem. Is the idea of black on black crime rooted in white supremacy, Jeff? Well, let's look at it this way. Okay. Are other countries where black people live, are they having the same issues with criminality and violence in those communities? And in those communities, in those countries, who is leading as far as government and legislation and laws and, and everything like that? If we can look at that, then actually, let me just pass this forward because this might be a discussion about culture. Is this a cultural norm for black people in America? I'm gonna go with no. There's no way it's a cultural norm for black people in America. It is a cultural norm for poor people in America. And there just so happens to be, because of a lot of interest uh, from the federal government, a lot of poor black people in America. So W.E.B. Dubois responded to what Hoffman uh, wrote and said criminal statistics raise the whole question as to how far black and white male factors are subjected to different standards of justice. So when talking about the crime statistics, should we consider the amount of black people who are wrongfully convicted as we were speaking of just seconds ago? Joseph, I see you nodding. Absolutely. And, and to go back to your to question to Jeff, um, there were no uh, prisons in the sense that we know them now when there was slavery, right? The system of incarceration in the way that we know, the system of criminalization in the way that we know it started in the United States after slavery, or in some cases during slavery, uh, to enforce things like slave codes, right? Many of the first police departments were runaway slave patrols, right? The U.S. Texas Rangers were used to uh, clear the land and, and essentially exterminate and push indigenous folks off of their land to make way for European expansion, right? So the use of criminality, the use of legality, and the use of tools of state power, which police are, which laws are, has absolutely been used to subjugate Black folks as well as indigenous folks and other oppressed populations in this country. Absolutely. In a 2014 report, the Justice Department found that people living in households below the federal poverty level were more than twice as likely to be victims of violent crime than people in high-income households. So is poverty more of a factor in crime than race, John? Is it, are they on to something when they talk about poverty? I certainly think, obviously, that poverty has a role when it comes to crime because poor people tend to be more desperate. They're willing to do more things to get certain essentials that they need. And black people tend to be the poorest uh, section of the population. So it's it, it kind of goes hand in hand, but you can't deny the racial factor. You also can't say that it's only poor people because you look at white poor communities and you drive through the white ghetto it's not the same as driving through Compton or South Central. Or but is that because we're given more attention through the media? It, 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 I, it might is Compton be, more know, sensationalized? Is Watts more sensationalized? Absolutely. Is Third Ward in Houston, Texas, Fifth Ward, uh, are they more sensationalized than those areas that are uh, poverty-stricken with white people? I, th it might be an issue of sensationalization, but I don't know the white neighborhood that I'm not supposed to drive through because I don't want to get shot by a gang member. 
And that's a reality, whether or not we want to admit it on air, every black person even is cautious, like, oh, don't drive through that neighborhood, don't drive through that neighborhood. I don't know, maybe that neighborhood you're speaking of that you don't know, John, is America. But, ooh, I ain't supposed to say that, though, right? Okay. (laughs) That's for another show. As a black man, as a black man, maybe maybe you live in that neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Joseph. Yeah, and I I just want to say, John just admitted, right, um, (laughs) that black folks in this country tend to be the poorest, right? And so, again, we're talking about poverty having such a huge uh, influence on crime, and we have to uh, question, why are black folks in this country still the poorest, right? Is it because black folks don't like to work, don't work hard? Did we not build this country, right? There's absolutely a system of laws and structures that contribute to the over-criminalization and abuse and murder of black folks. We're talking about Things like I'm here right now in in, uh, Tampa supporting the family of Andrew Joseph III. Andrew was 14 years old uh, at the state fair. And that night at the state fair, 99 young black boys were detained by the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. 99 of them and were labeled criminals, right? For things like running, for things like uh, fighting. These are 12, 14. The youngest boy that was detained was eight years old. Right. So the idea of black on black crime and the use of it to criminalize and over police our communities literally leads to more harm and death and trauma and not less. If we want to prevent black on black crime, let's bring more resources into black neighborhoods. Let's bring more services and support and quality jobs and quality housing and quality education into black communities and neighborhoods. Not more police, not more criminalization, not more incarceration, not more death. Who's let? Because is that just some imaginary big daddy that's going to bring in all that stuff? Because it is up to us, our communities, it is up to us to create the housing, to create those job opportunities, to build up our communities. I mean, that, that's what, what uh, Booker T. Washington was talking about when he was saying up from slavery. It wasn't like, give me, give me, give me. We need you to do all this stuff for us while we sit here and shoot each other. It was, let's build up our communities and let's build. Let's make these opportunities. On that imaginary sure Big Daddy note, we're going to take a break and come right back. Okay. Welcome back to Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack. I'm Tammy Mack. And today, the business of being black is black on black crime. Is it a myth or is it the truth? John says, well, first of all, Joseph said we need more resources in our communities. John said, well, where are we going to get it from? An imaginary Big Daddy? And to that, I say, bring the sugar daddy on if that's what it takes. But Joseph, uh, please, let's answer John's question because I want to know, too. Is there an imaginary big daddy that's going to come and save the black community? No, it's our funds, right? Our taxpayer funds that currently go towards the largest military in the entire world by far, that currently go towards the largest police budget in the entire world by far, that currently goes go towards the largest prison system and system of mass incarceration in the world by far. All of those things could be used to invest in greater mental health resources, greater preventative resources, better housing, better schools, and on and on and on. That would actually make our community safer, um, unlike greater criminalization and policing. John, where do you stand on those ideas? Well, let, let's see as an experiment, because I, I frankly, I'm tired of the military and frankly, I'm tired of the police, too. So let's see what happens if you take all of those resources and dump them into black communities. Something tells me it's not going to be the magic shift and psychic change, because that's what's needed. We need a total mentality change. And so we, we need don't need to, a big daddy. We need a mentality change. I think that that's fair. A spiritually, cultural, a total change in mentality and reading education books. 
That's going to be. But Kanye West said he's never read a book in his life. Look how. Yeah, and it, and it shows on his Instagram. You can tell. Oh, okay, man. Instagram. Go ahead, Jeff. <laughs> Okay, well, I think it's partially unfair for John to say if we were to re, uh, take some of the money from the police, which uh, in Columbus, the police uh, department budget is the third of our city's budget. So if we were to take some of that money and redistribute it, for John to say it's not going to work, we don't know. We've never actually tried it in this country. But to go back to what was said earlier about what sugar, sugar daddy or Big daddy. sugar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, white communities, they didn't build themselves. Um, this right. government, the federal government, had to re, uh, they had to eliminate uh, Native Americans, and then there was the Homestead Act, there was the Nationalization Act, there was redlining, and then highways were put through black neighborhoods. So it's not like they built their own communities either. With that said, though, yes, black people should build our own communities, but the federal government should also be a part of it as well because they built white communities. They Let's talk about redlining real quick since you brought it up, Jeff. Uh, redlining made it possible or rather made it impossible for black people to get homes in good neighborhoods. And according to Forbes, someone who owned a home in a redlined neighborhood earned 52% less in personal property value wealth over the last 40 years. So, of course, redlining is a discriminatory practice that consists uh, of the systemic denial of services such as mortgages, insurance, loans, other financial services to residents of certain areas based on their race or ethnicity. So there is something to be, I'm, I'm so surprised because every time I hear redlining, I hear that it's illegal, but it's still happening today. And I'm confused as to how it's possible and how nobody goes to jail for something that's a crime called redlining. John, help me here. Well, I, I thought it was illegal too, but at the end of the day, when people use terms like redlining to define discriminatory housing policies or practices, for me, it's like, I don't know if I'd want to live in someone's housing project who I know doesn't want me there. And there's a libertarian side of me that's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I don't want to move to the neighborhood where people are like, well, we don't like your kind here. I'm like, I'm going to choose a different neighborhood. So well, I listen, think that we to can that solve point, a lot John, of issues. I say, I'm, I'm sure Rosa Parks didn't want to sit at the front of the bus because we all find pleasure in the back. We just want the ability to be able to sit wherever we want if we want to and when we want to. And I, I want to double true. down on that, right? Even, you know, fights against segregation as well, segregated schools. It wasn't that we were just dying for our kids to be able to go to the same schools as white kids. We wanted the same quality of schools that white students had. We wanted the same quality of resources like books, like uh, chairs and tables that many black schools did not have. And we see that still today, like Jeff was saying, the wealth in white communities has been built through the state, right? The same state that sanctioned slavery, that sanctioned indigenous extermination, sanctioned the buildup of white wealth through the abuse and oppression and exploitation of black and indigenous communities. Jeff, I'm with we John when he says we need a, 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 I'm with John when he says we need a mental shift. Do you believe that black Americans need a mental shift? and particularly those of us who come from the ghetto? Well, look, I'm a millennial, and I know a lot of other millennial Black men who are around my age who say that we, we cut off the curse. And so, yeah, we can use a middle shift. Absolutely. We can use a cultural shift as well. Absolutely. I'm not going to put 100% on this 
on outside factors. Those are definitely useful, but I want the people to keep in mind, especially I'm gonna speak about Columbus specifically, the redlining map and compared to our foreclosure map in Columbus is the exact same map. What right. was set apart back in the day is still impacting us today. Talk to us about We Gonna Be All Right podcast. Where can we catch it? Yeah, I'm on YouTube, on my YouTube channel called We Gonna Be All Right. Uh, I think I just dropped a video the other day about <laughs> basic white <laughs> girls. But, you know... It's Wait, did you say basic, basic white girls? Yeah, yeah. I actually defend them a little bit because I got a little bit of basic nature in myself, so we gonna unpack that. I'm also a contributor for uh, the Young Turks. I'm on uh, Rebel HQ. You can catch me on YouTube and Facebook there as well. John, how can we keep up with you? You have so much going on. Yeah, you can go to my YouTube. I do YouTube as well. It's youtube.com slash John Miller. I'm on all the social channels except for Twitter where I was very unfortunately banned. But uh, you can They haven't um, put your Twitter back up yet? No, they have not put my Twitter back up yet. It's a long battle, and uh, that's a whole other show about how ridiculous all of that is. But uh, as it stands now, you can find me on Truth Social. In the meantime, make sure to go there. And Joseph, please uh, tell us about Students Deserve. Yes, so uh, I'm the director of Students Deserve, which organizes against the school to prison pipeline in Los Angeles. You can find us at, at LA underscore Students Deserve uh, on social media, also with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles and Black Lives Matter Grassroots at BLM Los Angeles and at BLM Grassroots on social media. I feel like I have a little time for a lightning round. I did not warn my producers of it, but I'm sure they're probably on it. But um, the lightning round is simply this. I want a yay or nay. Is black on black crime a myth or is it the truth and why? Okay, so let's do a last minute lightning round right about here. Bam, they got it. Joseph, black on black crime, a myth or the truth? It's a myth. It's a myth, and it's used to intentionally distract from the very real structural racism that continues to impact the Black community. Wow. Jeff, what you got? Black on Black crime. Is it a myth, or is it the truth? It's a myth. We're talking about residential seg segregation and concentrated poverty, so we can just call it pro uh, proximity crime. Proximity crime, period, not proximity on proximity? <laughs> Whichever one. You know what? I'll let you choose, Sammy Max. <laughs> John, black on black crime, myth or the truth? It is the truth. The truth is in the numbers, and you can obfuscate it as much as you want with terminology. At the end of the day, the facts prove that blacks are killing other blacks at record numbers, and it's a problem that the black community itself needs to fix. Mm, okay, so in one word, we're going to answer John's question, and that question is, how do we fix it? Joseph, how do we fix it? Resources. Resources. There goes that ever-popular Big Daddy again. Jeff, how do we fix it? I'll say legislation. God dang it, Joseph stole mine. <laughs> <laughs> I like legislation because I honestly believe that's how we fix it. John, you get the last word here. How do we fix it? Self-reflection and Christ. Did you say Christ as in Jesus? In, as in Jesus Christ. On that note, that is The Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack on Fox Soul. So you want to invest in companies that can do as much for the world as your portfolio. But how do you find them? 
At Fidelity, we research, we dig, we turn over rocks, and we seek out companies that are successful, not in spite of their commitment to sustainability, but because of it. Want to get clarity on your sustainable investing? Fidelity can help bring it all into focus. Visit fidelity.com slash sustainable to learn more. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. The Mazda lineup of SUVs will provide safety, performance, and capability on your journey ahead. From the three-row Mazda CX-9 to the first-ever Mazda CX-50, our sales team is ready to guide you to the SUV for your lifestyle. Shop the Omaha Metro's exclusive Mazda dealers at Woodhouse Mazda in Bellevue or Woodhouse Place Mazda. Visit us online for your next Mazda SUV at woodhousemazda.com.